When the omega-3 index was originally proposed, it was proposed in three different risk factors uh, and is really related to heart disease risk and sudden cardiac death risk. That's where it was originally came from. And so it was found that people with a level of above 8% red blood cell level were at a greatly reduced risk of dying from a sudden heart attack. And that was compared to people who had levels less than 4%, and those people were at much, much higher risk. Hello, and welcome to the science and the story behind Omega-3, a podcast brought to you by Wiley Companies, where we explore one of the most researched nutrients on the planet. Listen in as global omega-3 experts and researchers translate the science, reveal personal insights, and share their stories of discovery while navigating the sea of omega-3 science. Thanks for joining us today. Now here's your host, Greg Lindsay. Ah, yes. Welcome back to another episode of the science and the story behind omega-3 where we talk with experts from all over the world. My guest today received her PhD in nutritional sciences from Pennsylvania State University in 2013 and completed her training to become a registered dietitian in 2014. That same year, she joined the family business, OmegaQuant Analytics, as a research associate with a particular focus on omega-3s in maternal health, helping create the prenatal DHA test and the mother's milk DHA test. On our program today to talk about the work being done at OmegaQuant and the Omega-3 Index is Dr. Christina Jackson. Dr. Jackson, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. I would love to jump right in as we have a lot to cover today. First, can you tell me a little bit about OmegaQuant and what your company does? Yes. OmegaQuant is a clinical and medical laboratory, uh, CLIA certified in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and we specialize in measuring fatty acids. And really, any sample type, we work a lot with researchers from universities and from companies to measure fatty acids in all kinds of things. And then we also have a clinical side that really focuses on measuring omega-3 fatty acids in dried blood spots. So as the director of research of OmegaQuant, I guess I'm going to ask you the obvious question, and that is, how much omega-3 should people be taking? This is, I get asked this all the time. And my answer is always, it depends, which is highly unsatisfying. But what's really great is we have a lot more data and research to guide our decisions on how much omega-3 to take now. And it really, for me, comes back to testing and personalization and self-experimentation, because what works for one person might not work for you. So really, I recommend testing your blood levels. So our main test is the omega-3 index, and that's what we would recommend testing. And the omega-3 index is the level of EPA and DHA, which are the omega-3s that are from fish and fish oil. It's the level of that in, in your red blood cell membrane. So it's your membranes, your cells are made of fat different kinds of fats. We measure all those different kinds of fats every time we do a test. And then we take the EPA and DHA level over the total and we get a percentage. So for omega-3 index, we're looking at um, a goal of having 8 to 12% of those fatty acids being EPA and DHA. So your omega-3 index would be 
8%. And so typically, if you're not eating any fish, not taking any fish oil, you're probably a level three, four, five percent. And that's pretty typical in the United States, in Canada, in Western countries, places where fish is not commonly eaten. And then from that number, I would be able to estimate how much omega-3 you should take for the next basically three months to bump your level up to six, seven, eight percent. And we have a calculation that we can do that from, from a study that we published with all kinds of researchers. And Using that information, we have the personalized blood levels. We have the research to show what kind of dosing we should target. And then you retest because ultimately that number is really an average number. So if the average person to go from 4 to 8% takes about 1,400 milligrams of EPA and DHA a day. Uh, that's really only going to work for half the people, probably. <laughs> so some people need more and some people need less. So always testing your own blood levels to me is the way to go. And what would be the sequence of that testing? Is there a time horizon to that? Yeah. So I would do your baseline test. Just test right now. Whatever you're doing diet-wise, don't change it. Just test it. And then you find out what that equals in your blood and then you change it. So if you do your blood test, you find out you're at 4%, you can go to our website and put that number into a calculator and you can say, I want to get to 8% and it'll give you a recommendation. It should be around 1400 milligrams. And it does matter the form of omega-3s that you would take in a supplement. So that's a whole nother little issue that we can talk about. And so then you would find a supplement where you could get 1400 milligrams a day of EPA and DHA. You kind of opened up, so I'll ask the question because a lot of people prefer to get nutrients from food over supplements, and are they able to do that with omega-3? Yes, of course. So real quick to finish up, once you figure out, I need this many milligrams a day, I need to add to my diet, you can do it through fish or supplements, absolutely. And we would recommend doing that for at least three months before you retest. It's a slower marker, so the omega-3 index is kind of like HbA1c in that it's a red blood cell marker and it moves slowly versus a plasma marker, which would be like a plasma glucose, which is supposed to go up and down throughout the day. Um, a plasma omega-3 level will also go up and down throughout the day. So the omega-3 index is that stable month-long marker, so it takes months to change it. So you'll change your diet for three months and retest. So you can do this through a supplement, or you can do it through fish. So we've done some studies on just people who've tested with us, and we've asked them, how often do you eat fish? Do you take a supplement? Real basic questions. And we find a very clear pattern. The lower the fish intake, the lower the level. The higher the fish intake, the higher the omega-3 level. And when you add a supplement, typically that is an, a bump of about 2 percentage points on the omega-3 index scale. And so for us, what we saw in the paper that we published, I think it was 2018, is that for people to be close to 8% just without taking a supplement, they had to be eating at least three servings of fish a meal, which was the highest option we gave. And what we really see is it's probably more like an every other day or everyday fish intake. So countries that have an average omega-3 level of eight or higher, Japan is usually the main one we think about, but they're typically Japan and Norway and countries that eat fish culturally every day. And so that's how you will naturally have a high level and you do that throughout your life and your mom did it throughout her life and these, it all builds, but it's 
it's absolutely possible. It's kind of a cultural shift or like a pescatarian diet could get you there as well. So it's uh, not picking on the people in Kansas, but it's quite possible that people in Kansas might not eat as much fish as people on the coast, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think I think a lot of people turn to omega threes for their supplements. Is there a right way? How would someone select the appropriate supplement to get the appropriate amount of omega three daily intake? Mm-hmm. So what we found is the dose is really key. It's one of the most important things. The second most important thing is the form of the supplement. So um, when we did this study, the first author was Rachel Walker, and we were trying to make a calculator to give this dose. Like, we have this baseline level, how much omega-3 should we recommend for them to get to an 8 to 12%? And the baseline level of omega-3 and the dose of omega-3 were the main predictors, the main things that we need to know. And then the other thing was form. So the form of the omega-3s, and that is in this, in supplements and in food, omega-3s are in different forms. In fish, they're typically phospholipid and triglyceride forms. In some supplements, they are phospholipid, which would be more krill supplements, I believe. Some supplements are triglyceride-based, and those older triglyceride-based supplements were not very potent. The dose of EPA and DHA was not very high. So now they have reconstituted triglyceride supplements, which have a higher dose of EPA and DHA while still being in the triglyceride form. So that's a sweet spot. And then there's ethyl esters. And ethyl ester forms are how omega-3 supplements were originally made to be more highly concentrated. And that's what uh, Loveza is. It's what a lot of the prescription omega-3s came out as because that was just the best way to concentrate the omega-3s. Now, many high-dose omega-3 supplements that you can find over the counter are ethyl ester as well. Unfortunately, it's not standard how it's labeled on the packaging, so you don't always know, is this an ethyl ester or triglyceride form? Um, What I found is typically triglyceride form supplements are advertised as such. It's not on like the official nutrient facts label, but it says triglyceride-based. Um, so why am I going over all this? The ethyl ester versions typically take more, you need more omega-3 from the ethyl ester supplements than you do from the triglyceride and the phospholipid. And that's what we found in this paper. We found um, to go from 4 to 8% or 5 to 8% for a triglyceride form, it would take about 1,400 milligrams a day for three months. For an ethyl ester form, it would take about 2,200 milligrams. So that difference of about 700 milligrams a day between the two forms is, is substantial. And it's just what I think is going on with ethyl ester is there's an issue with whether or not you've taken it with food. So the ethyl ester form is more affected by whether or not you've taken it with food. Because if you take it on an empty stomach or with a very low fat meal, we've seen that some people don't absorb it well at all in that case. And so there's just more variability in that absorption. But if you do take it with food and you do have um, and you have good fat absorption, it works well for some people. So there's just more variability. The triglyceride side and phospholipid side don't seem to be as affected by that fasting and fed state. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. All 
I'm fascinated by the ease of use of the Omega Quant test. So how would I use my Omega-3 index to tailor my diet and supplement plan to optimize my levels? Um, exactly what we've just been going over. It's This gives you the information to actually strategically supplement or strategically include fish into your diet. A lot of people casually supplement or casually eat fish and they think that will give them very good omega-3 levels and that's just not the case um, in places where fish is not commonly eaten. And so with supplements specifically, it's so much better to know what you're looking for. So when I'm saying we're going to do your blood level, put your level in and you and you find um, in the calculator your dose, that's the dose of EPA and DHA. It's not the dose of fish oil. <laughs> so this is another like there's so much confusion in the market that I feel like testing and finding out your dose of EPA and DHA that you need just cuts through all the noise. But you do have to do a little research. So when you're looking for the supplement, you have to look on the supplement facts panel. You have to look at what the serving size is. Is it one supplement? Is it one capsule? Is it two capsules? Is it one tablespoon, teaspoon, any of that? What is that number? And then what the EPA and the DHA amounts are in that serving size. So if it's 300 EPA and 200 DHA, then it's 500 milligrams in that serving. If the serving size is two capsules, then you divide it by half. So you have 250 EPA and DHA in each capsule. And then you take that number and you apply it to the dose that we've recommended of EPA and DHA. So if you only get 250 in a capsule and you need to get 1400, I can't even do that math this quickly, but it's a lot of pills. And this is what some people think um, they're taking more EPA and DHA than they are because your fish oil pill might say a thousand milligrams. It only has 300 EPA and DHA fatty acids because there's more than just EPA and DHA in fish oil. So that discrepancy is very important and doing the testing with the dosing really cuts through the noise and you're able to find a supplement that meets your needs. And then there are all kinds of other things that people are looking at in their supplements for sustainability. Um, do you want big or little capsules? Do you want to take a liquid? Do you care about what fish source it's from? So many decisions, but the Main thing is if the dose isn't high enough, it doesn't, you're not really going to get the, the true therapeutic benefit of getting levels up to 8%. And so you do that, you find out how much supplement you need to take for three months, and then you retest. And if it's not high enough, which it might not be, or if it's too high, then you can adjust. So I've often seen two grams is a great place for a lot of people to start, but I've seen several people who I consult with who need to be at three grams on a specific supplement. Now, they could try different supplements. Maybe if that's an ethyl ester, maybe they try a triglyceride and they can go back down to two grams. Um, so this is where your self-experimentation and your testing really comes into play. Can you explain how the omega-3 index may be different from other omega tests that people have heard of or, or maybe have taken? Yes. So the omega-3 index is one of the main uh, hallmarks of it is that it's a red blood cell test. And so it's that slow marker and it's not affected by what you just ate. It's not affected by uh, what you ate yesterday. So you can't really trick it. It's, it's really saying this is what you did over the last three months. So that compared to a plasma level, most of the stuff that we get measured at the doctor's office is coming from plasma and plasma is, is more affected by what you've just eaten because that's where all your like nutrients and, and everything come in and are transported throughout the body. They're really in that plasma portion of your blood. 
And so it changes more readily than the red blood cell. So that's one thing. And then the other, Omega Quant specifically, we are the lab that actually invented the Omega-3 index. And so we have loads of research and we continue to do research on this number. And the actual value, 8 to 12%, by our method is what matches to research levels. And other labs might do a red blood cell test. But if they're not using our method or they don't have the same number of fatty acids they measure, then you won't get exactly the same answer. And so those two things are pretty major when you're looking at what your results mean and the context of your results. But there are omega tests all over the place, and you can hopefully figure out what they mean. But if you're going pretty much anywhere else, you're not going to be looking for 8 to 12%. You're going to be looking for whatever they've set as their targets. We hear level talked about. So is there a normal omega-3 level? And if so, what is that level? Yeah, there is. Um, as far as we know, the the normal omega-3 level is about 4 or 5% in the U.S. Canada actually just did a representative sampling of their population and did measure the omega-3 index using our method. And their median level was 4.5%. And in the U.S., we've done this with plasma. And when we convert the plasma level to red blood cell, we estimate it's around 4.5% as well. Um, so that's low. So normal is not good, <laughs> we think, in the U.S. When the omega-3 index was originally proposed, it was proposed in three different risk factors. Uh, and it's really related to um, heart disease risk and sudden cardiac death risk. That's where it was originally came from. And so it was found that people with a level of above 8% red blood cell level were at a greatly reduced risk of dying from a sudden heart attack. Um, and that was compared to people who had levels less than 4%. And those people were at much, much higher risk. So that 4% mark is another kind of line in the sand where it's below that is is very low, undesirable. Between 4 and 8%, you're kind of in an intermediate range. Better than less than 4, it's a spectrum. So being higher versus lower, even if you're not fully to 8%, is better. But we are really close to that low mark for the average level <laughs> for the population. And that uh, that's really probably the focus of like public health and supporting fish intake. So our current fish intake recommendations are for about two servings a week. Being at about two servings a week, we think would get people to about five or 6%. So that'd be good. That'd be a big step. And plus eating it as fish, you get all other kinds of benefits as well. Um, so from the public health perspective, getting the low end of people up a little higher is very valuable from a health optimization perspective, kind of an individual perspective. Um, if you're going to supplement, I would do it so that you're actually getting enough to feel that benefit up at 8%. Are there any groups, and I think maybe um, elite athletes, are there any groups that might need more omega-3 than other groups? Um, yeah, that is a great question. Um, I do think we do see with elite athletes, they tend to be low. We've seen that they can be higher at the beginning of the season and then lower at the end. And part of this is in omega-3s are involved in, in the inflammation processing and, and healing process. And exercise can be very, very inflammatory to your body. So um, that makes sense. If athletes are good about their, their diet or supplementation, they're able to avoid that drop. 
And so they might need extra or they might have a level of supplementation that's good for their off season. And then once they're in season, it needs to be a little bit higher because that you're going to have to counterbalance that drop off. But really it's, there's so much individual variation that large groups, it's hard to really predict who's going to respond well to supplementation or who's going to respond well to diet here. And I think the omega-3s you get through your diet are better absorbed in general. And if you're kind of, if that's a really typical thing, then it's, it's, it's less, it's easier to forget your supplementation than to forget to eat a meal and it happens to have fish in it. And so I really think I see the individual variation happening in any large group, but people who are involved in things that may increase inflammation chronically. So potentially also some disease states that are chronic inflammation, you might need a little bit more omega-3 to maintain your levels or to get your levels up. As a mom, omega-3 levels in children, do you have any advice or thoughts around feeding fish to children or feeding a supplement to children? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. So another area where omega-3s are really vital nutrients is the area of pregnancy and breastfeeding. And I don't know if women actually need more omega-3. It's just really important to get enough omega-3 in those times. Um, and the body is using it and the body is actually doing all these things to make more DHA specifically available to the fetus. It's taking it out of your fat stores. You're a little bit better at making it in your body. The placenta is pulling DHA specifically across for the baby to develop its main portion of your brain and eyes. And so it's, it's very important for the pregnancy part. And then when you're past that into the breastfeeding lactation stage, mom's DHA status, her blood levels are also represented in her milk. And so your milk levels will change with the diet as well. Um, we've seen that quite a bit and we actually do test breast milk levels at OmegaQuant. We do a mother's milk DHA test. And then we also do a specific pregnancy test for moms called the um, prenatal DHA test. So you can test your blood levels for DHA specifically, which is really the fatty acid that we see in pregnancy as being the most predictive of outcomes and really represents omega-3 status. And so you can test those and see, am I getting enough or am I just being depleted? Because mom gets very, very depleted <laughs> in, in DHA if she's not eating any of it. So then with lactation and having higher DHA levels, that gets into baby and then the baby's blood levels are higher. We've seen this in the research over and over again. So that's a really good thing. Then when baby starts to eat, you can start to introduce fish. I mean, fish should be a very easy thing for a child to eat texture wise. All of this comes down to what you're, you know, you have a lot of control over what you present to your, to your kid. And the whole picky eater type of thing is not my area of expertise. So there are RDs that are all over that. And I would recommend going and finding those if you need ways to like hide food or slowly introduce it. Salmon tends to be fairly mild in flavor and making it, uh, you know, I sometimes put brown sugar on my salmon. So that makes a, a little sh sugar to make the medicine go down. Um, it's really just it's, it's with any food and how you introduce it to the child. The earlier you do it, the more they're used to it. It's not something weird. If you can, the really oily fish can have a difficult smell sometimes. So if that's really going to 
turn you or your kid off, then maybe don't start with that. And also, it's been estimated you have to have a kid try a food 11 times on average before they can really know if they like it or not. So sticking with it, continuing to have it, eating it yourself, very good for fish intake. When it comes to supplements for kids, I know that there are plenty of supplements that are now designed for kids as far as um, dosing goes. We typically wouldn't dose kids as high as adults. Um, kids tend to have lower omega-3 index levels that we've seen, whether or not that's just normal because everyone has low levels in the U.S. basically, <laughs> and so their kids then do, um, versus what it looks like kids in other countries of their levels also just lower, and then as they get older, they get they build up more and more. So we, we kind of look at for kids an omega-3 index score of about 6% we think is a good place to be versus 8%. Not that 8 to 12 is bad or harmful for kids, just maybe don't need to be all the way up there yet. And then for supplements, there are, I'm probably not the best person to describe what supplements are available. I know there are things like Barleen's, which is kind of a smoothie type of supplement. There are other supplements that have just like good flavors and I don't really know how good gummies are. I think they're probably getting better, but sometimes gummies can have like almost no omega-3 and it's like, does you really need to do that? I don't know. I would rather get a little bit more potent source. There's also cod liver oil, which is the most classic supplement that was given to kids. I mean, that's the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. That's some, that can be fairly potent. Um, they do deodorize a lot of the liquid supplements now and liquid supplements can be very potent. You get a lot of omega-3 in a very small dose and you don't have big pills to swallow. So I, I love liquids. I take a liquid. So for kids, that is also much better. I can't imagine trying to get kids to really take pills or capsules, but I know people have. So yeah, so getting fish in the diet, if you want to have a supplement on hand, that's great. As far as like wanting to test your kids, you can. I have never yet because I don't really want to prick my kids' fingers yet. <laughs> but other people who have, who are, you know, trying to use omega-3s in more therapeutic ways will test blood levels. Well, Dr. Jackson, as we wind down our time today, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share around omega-3 or omega-3 testing? Um, I just like it because it lets you know if you're getting what you paid for. If you're going to pay for a supplement, you might as well find out if it's getting in your body. And I think it's well worth the testing cost and the knowledge. And then you find whatever works for you. And, and you don't have to test as frequently, in my opinion. You just It's kind of one of the only ways you can know you're really absorbing it. Christina, thank you so much for being with us today. Omega Quant, such, a, such an amazing company. And I would, I would encourage our listeners to go to your website. Could you please share that website address? Yes, we're at omegaquant.com. O-M-E-G-A-Q-U-A-N-T. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Jackson, for being here. And listeners, thank you. And as always, be healthy, be well, and fight the good fight. This has been The Science and the Story behind Omega-3. Thanks to our sponsor, Wiley Companies. You can find them and more information about our show at wileyco.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Any 
Any statements on this podcast are the opinion of the scientific guest and or author and have not yet been evaluated by the FDA. The information we may provide to you is designed for educational purposes only is not intended to be a substitute for informed medical advice or care. This information should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any health issues or conditions without consulting a healthcare professional. If you are experiencing a health issue or condition, we suggest you consult with your healthcare professional. 